0: to Nature Bats Last on the Progressive Radio Network. It's NBL on PRN.FM. This April 2021 edition, episode 149 of Nature Bats Last. This is Kevin Hester and I'm again joined today by my co-host, Professor Guy McPherson. Today's show includes a conversation with Jim Masser. Guy, will you do the honours, please?
1: Thank you, Kevin. We are pleased to have Jim Massa join us today for the second time. He also served as our guest in January of this year. You can find that episode in the archives. Today we will focus on Jim's ongoing work in public education, which is derived from more than 20 years of teaching at Diné College in New Mexico and the University of Alaska in Fairbanks, as well as a middle school and high school substitute science teacher. In addition to a substitute teaching, Jim's primary educational platform currently is YouTube where he has a channel called Science Talk with Jim Masta. He discusses recent and emerging information in scientific research with the goal of presenting evidence in a manner that can be understood by the general public. He has been handling topics such as climate change, astronomy, environmental science, and paleontology for more than three years on his YouTube channel. Jim, welcome to Nature Baths Last on the Progressive Radio Network.
2: Thank you, gentlemen, and uh, I'm happy to be here. And uh, thank you for inviting me back. And uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you both again. We
1: will yes. be taking your toll. We will be taking your toll-free calls today. Please call us with your questions and comments after we spend a bit of time with our guest. We are most easily reached with a toll-free telephone call to 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. Kevin, will you start us off? I will indeed. Welcome back, Jim.
0: Jim, the uh, Australian Bureau of Meteorology has just announced in their latest Enzo RAP and it's titled La Niña 2020-2021 fades as El Niño southern oscillation returns to neutral. So they believe that the La Niña phase is fading away. What do you think the effects of the next El Niño will be in the Arctic and specifically to the... Um, refreezing of the Arctic sea ice?
2: Well, um, usually, nothing can be uh, as usual anymore these days uh, with all that's going on around the world. Usually, at least for the west coast of the North American continent, um, El Nino typically brings uh, wetter conditions. And considering that how California has suffered through drought, excuse me, and fires. Uh, Australia has suffered through um, uh, very serious uh, fires. Um, El Nino could be, could bring wetter conditions. However, I caution that with El Nino, and I'm going to speak from my perspective as an oceanographer, that uh, that does not bode well for productivity in the eastern um, Specific, uh, ocean, eastern equatorial Pacific Ocean as the pycnocline uh, tends to be de- depressed, which would uh, inhibit you know, upwelling of nutrients and therefore inhibit productivity. So that's kind of what I would be looking at. And I'm sure there's other things uh, as well.
0: So one of the, the things, you know, you mentioned the increased um, uh, rain or water vapor. One of the things that's happened in the Arctic is that now starting to get huge numbers of lightning strikes that weren't happening up there before. And that uh, apparently is linked to the humidity. So, you know, already we're seeing some pretty drastic atmospheric changes when you're getting a region that never had lightning before, getting it regularly.
2: That's, that's true. Um, I mean, in Alaska, dry lightning is kind of, uh, a, a fact of life, especially in the summertime, but now I'm hearing reports of uh, lightning in wintertime, which is like, whoa, that is different. <laughs> I mean, so, uh, yes, And of course, with the dry lightning strike, that increases the risk of fires starting, and we are seeing uh, an increase in lightning activities, no doubt about that.
1: Jim, thanks again for joining us today. I want to start off with a question about the role of educators in contemporary society. In light of ready access to information from the internet, the standard approach of transferring data from the instructor's brain into the student's brains seems a little dated. How do you deal with this issue in your classrooms, past and especially now?
2: Well, I always caution my students and say, yeah, it's easy to to Google something, and I said, but you, the, mater- the information has not been peer reviewed, It has not been vetted. And there's a lot of, to be quite frankly, there's a lot of garbage out there that's just simply not uh, correct. And, um, so I, I still stress kind of the, call me old fashioned, but I still stress the, the thing of doing actual research, you know, you know, to vet the source of the information. I'll give you an example. Uh, in Finland, they actually, starting in grade school, they actually teach the students how to critically uh, assess, analyze uh, the information that they're finding online. You know, how to tell that something, for example, is news versus opinion, how to tell is something that, say, in the scientific uh, you know uh, they're looking at something scientifically how whether that information is correct or not that's something that um, is woefully lacking here in the US and I think uh, that uh, along with the reteaching civics uh, needs to start taking place we need to teach the young people how to critically look at the information they're, they're finding
1: and how to assess its validity and its viability Yeah, that's a good point. I had a colleague at the University of Arizona shortly after the internet became widely available on campus. A student would come in with a term paper or some other sort of research project. And this professor would ask the student where the information came from. The student would tell him I got it on the internet. And this professor would kick his garbage can over to the student and say, you can file that right there. So the internet obviously isn't what it used to be but still critical thinking is required before we just take information and run with it. My, I wanna ask a series of questions actually that focuses on education. It was two shows ago that we had Professor Paul Ehrlich on this show and he said that basically what we what we can do at this point is inform people. What we can do is teach people, but it's too late to turn around abrupt, irreversible climate change. And he included us in the category of headed for extinction in light of the ongoing mass extinction event. And so I want to focus on education in light of that being what we can do, according to Professor Ehrlich, and I agree with him. So From a global perspective, it was only about 2,500 years ago, Socrates was either a figment of Plato's imagination or he was asking people some form of his famous six questions. What is good? What is piety? What is virtue? What is courage? What is good? What is moderation? My question for you then is, when and where did we turn away from this question-centered approach, and what, in your opinion, are the consequences?
2: Well, that's uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's easily uh, able to discern. I think it's been an, a long, ongoing process. You can, uh, you can, one can make the argument that it, it accelerated in the last four decades. I think uh, when you have um, a former Secretary of Education declare that uh, civics no longer needs to be taught in the uh, in the K through 12. Uh, grades or that reducing the standards in, um, you know, how many units of math and science and English and languages, etc., are required to graduate high school. You know, y- y- you set things up such that people are, are ju- you know, the, the young people are just really, um, they're, they're not exposed to many things. And I think you know being exposed to as many disciplines uh, you know subject matters as possible helps um, folks think of the you know the you know the questions how to how to uh, how to think through something how to you know say what about this scenario, what about this scenario and if this is the case, then what about here and then you couple that with the instant gratification of just typing in something in the search engine and you get a bunch of stuff showing up where, again, as we just mentioned, no one's really assessing the information critically, it, it all adds up to what you just described, basically, that it kind of gone off the rails here.
1: Well that's right. And I think it was George Carlin who said we have more information and less wisdom than we've ever had before, and that was not very far into the Internet revolution. And I agree with you that it's there we have certainly seen an acceleration within the last forty years as information has become more widely available. So in addition to critical thinking still skills obviously being not viewed as important or, or as important anymore, what else? What are the consequences of this instant gratification that I can always find the answer to anything sort of society? What's, what's the matter with that approach, and is it possible to turn it around, if only in our own classrooms?
2: Well, if I may, there's a couple things I want to bring up. And one is that in, in my years of teaching and, and doing research, what, what I have noticed is that college, unfortunately, has changed from becoming teaching people how to critically think to teaching people, or as I, like, or as I prefer to say, training people how to do things. You know, you train people just enough to do something but not enough would they start questioning things. And I think that goes right back to your point about, uh, you know, the Socratic method, if you will. I remember, if I can relate this little uh, uh, incident in a classroom many years ago, it was a calculus one class. And we were, uh, the subject was using derivatives to generate graphs of functions. And uh, I was, I was covering rational functions and it was something like one, it was in the numerator and the denominator was four minus x squared. So I went through the first and second derivative, the test, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, you know, determine the asymptote, yada yada, and I plotted it all up. I had a student rush up to me at the end of class, telling me I did it all wrong, and then he shows me his calculator with a graphing function on it, and. I looked at it, and it was a calculator that I'm very familiar with, so I know how it operates. And I looked at him and I said, okay, you have a rational function here. You look at your graph. Do you see any vertical asymptotes? And you had 4 minus x squared, so x equals plus minus 2 are your vertical asymptotes. I said, where are, they, where are your vertical asymptotes? Right there, that should have been a clue that something is not correct here. And then I, I asked him, I said, show me how you programmed it. And this is what he had: 1 slash 4 minus x 2. I said, why don't you put parentheses around the 4 and the x-carat 2? I made him do that, and I made him re-graph it, and what showed up on the screen was what I had developed on the board. But this goes to the point that if you don't really know enough about what you're doing, you cannot trust what you see on a screen. And this is why I've always been reticent about allowing students uh, use of calculators because they don't know enough yet of whatever it is they're studying to really know for sure if what comes up on you know, their screen or however they program it is correct, valid, and so forth.
1: Yeah, those parentheses can make a big difference. Hey, I've
0: got an interesting anecdote about that sort of data input. Um, When I used to do ocean passage making, I've done 16 ocean passages on small yachts. And what I'd do is I'd get the paper charts out and I'd put waypoints between New Zealand and whatever island in the Pacific we were going to. And I'd put a few waypoints and mark an X on uh, on the paper chart. And then I'd get the different crew members to write down the latitude and longitude to work out how we were going to program the GPS. And I'd say to them, write down the lat and long yourselves and keep it separate from each other. And we'll compare our notes at the end. And when we did it three or four, with three or four times, um, one of us got the number wrong. And I actually got the number wrong myself. It wasn't, wasn't just uh, my my crew members. So th- these data inputs are critically important.
2: Yeah. It, well, as someone who's slightly dyslexic, uh, when I was entering my data into you know files and you know data files and all that kind of stuff, I was basically paranoid to the point that like I was entering something incorrectly, and I would end up you know triple quadrupling things just to make sure I didn't make a, a mistake along those lines, because it, it can easily happen. I mean, it happens to the best of us. I mean, <laughs> in, in, in a, in a graduate-level uh, oceanography class, the instructor uh, was uh, developing equations for convergence and divergence zones. And at the end, he just kind of goes, "Uh oh," <laughs> and, and basically, what what happened was a sign got dropped on, like you know, like way back in the in the proceedings of things. It happened. these things happen. That's why it's critical that you know, part part of in my view, part of being a good scientist is being diligent in in, uh, in, in the the work that you're doing, uh, whether it's the calculations, the programming, what have you. you need to be diligent. Uh, I think that's a major part of being a good uh, scientist as well as being a good educator.
1: Absolutely. And that critical thinking, the ability to critically think is important, but you hinted earlier that there are societal roadblocks to taking that approach to trying to get students to think critically. Can you elaborate that on a little bit more? What, What kind of societal roadblocks do you run into with middle and high school students when it comes to problems like parentheses and even more challenging problems with respect to critical thinking skills
2: well the, the, the first major problem I have is uh, when I'm substituting and the students are sitting there on their cell phones and not on task, and they you know they, or they, even when they're given a tablet or whatever. You know, they're, they're pulling up stuff, you know, they're doing gaming and all this other stuff. It's very, they're not, they're not staying on task. And that to me is a major problem. In Sweden, as an example, when students show up for school, they are required to turn in their cell phones into the front office. If, it, if there's a parental emergency, whatever, the parent calls the office, the office goes, gets the student. That is what I think is a first step that needs to be happening here in the U.S., just basically say no cell phones in the classroom,
1: period. Stunningly, we all three got along without a cell phone in the classroom for the whole time we were in public schools. (laughs) I don't think we suffered all that greatly.
2: Well, uh, I'm, I'm of a certain age where if you wanted to find out the trigonometric or logarithmic value of something, use things called tables and you extrapolate extrapolating.
1: <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> hey, Jim, can we get back to the Arctic for a moment, please? Um, and, and also the, the, the potential for a new uh, El Niño to, to be building. Um, We've already seen a lot of meandering of the jet streams as a result of uh, loss of sea ice and more meltwater in the Arctic. Do you think those jet streams will be affected in any different way by an El Nino event?
2: Well, uh, 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 talking about the uh, referencing the uh, AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturn Circulation? Correct, yeah. Yeah. well, you, 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 because you have that, a lot of these things are connected atmospherically, of course, it's going to be uh, teleconnections uh, between uh, the various uh, atmospheres. In the Pacific side, you have the um, ENSO, you've got the IPO, and you've got the PDO, along with the uh, Indian Ocean Dipole that are very strongly teleconnected and, and certainly uh, will influence what happens across the entire Pacific. As far as w- how that translates over into uh, the Atlantic side of things, it will be more indirectly. You know, the, and so be connected to the PDO. The PDO then connects with the Arctic Oscillation, which connects to the North Atlantic Oscillation. But when you look at what's going on with the sea ice, yeah, that's that's just you know we're we're on track to a, a blue ocean event. You know take your pick, whatever, you know, year it is a decade. As far as what this does to the Gulf Stream, the Gulf Stream is flowing. We have data that sh- that tells us this. So if the Gulf Stream is flowing, that means the deep water formation is flowing. We have data that tells us this. Keep in mind, this whole, you know, Gulf Stream AMAR conveyor belt, that's a heat distribution mechanism for the planet. So you're going to start seeing a greater disparity between lower latitudes and higher latitudes. Now, when I first ch- started my channel uh, several years back, in, in, in my videos are there, they say, oh, slowing down at AMOC will, will eventually lead to cooler conditions and ice ages, possibly, because we have data that tells us this. I no longer subscribe to that because of the, the heat content that I'm seeing in the ocean Especially the first 500 meters all the way down to 2,000 meters, there's just so much heat energy, you know, in the form of latent sensible heat, what have you, that even if, you know, AMOX uh, slows dramatically or even stops, there's enough heat, in my assessment, that this heat will diffuse into the atmosphere and still keep things warmer. So uh, it's, and and to, to go to take the the, uh, the thing a little further about uh, the, what's going on in the ocean, if you get this all this heat, you're going to stratify the oceans, and I'm seeing data that's indicating the oceans are stratifying. Stratified oceans is not a good thing for the planet. It's not a good thing for marine productivity. If ecosystems can collapse, and if you have stratification without a Reinjection of nutrients from below, i.e. mixing through a pycnocline or a thermocline, what have you, then the phytoplankton will uh, die off. And the phytos go, of course, then the rest of the food system collapses. But also keep in mind, phytos supply some 55 to 80% of atmospheric oxygen. So when I say the situation is dire, the situation is dire,
1: My friend Justin, I believe that's who's calling from New Jersey. Do you have a comment or a question, Justin?
3: Yeah, hi. A uh, long-time listener, first-time caller here. I watched, uh, listened to your show, Jim, in January, where you mentioned that younger sea ice had a translucent property and it was easier for solar radiation to heat that ice. And I was just, um, just speculating with a few of my friends that follow the show about the thickness currently of the ice and you kind of mentioned this already but essentially what are your thoughts on the possibility of the blue ocean event happening either this year or next year with given how little refreeze kind of we've had like last year
2: well it's always it's always difficult to predict exactly when one can make best projections based on models but the the main thing is, as you just uh, stated, and, and you know that with the younger sea ice, yes, it is more translucent, so more uh, solar energy does penetrate through the ice in, and heat up the water below. We are we are losing massive amounts of the old ice, the uh, the three, four, five, six year old uh, sea ice, which is uh, what provides a great uh, portion of the albedo. So as you lose the multi-year ice, the older ice, the albedo is going to be declining. So in essence, you're setting up a, a bit of a positive feedback loop where you're going to have uh, less and less uh, older ice, less and less new ice, so that you now the, the Arctic Ocean starts absorbing that heat energy. And um, this, as I said earlier, uh, take your pick. You know, but I really think uh, that some point in this decade, um, we're going to see a BOE. Now, some of the models I've seen say anywhere from 2022 to 2024-25, and some models uh, continue projection that by the mid-2030s, uh, the BOE will be a year-round event, which is very troubling.
1: I've been in touch with Vyslav Maslowski at the U.S. Naval Postgraduate College, sorry, Postgraduate School. He was the senior author on the p- paper called "The Future of Arctic Sea Ice," which appeared in the 2012 version of the Annual Review of Earth and Planetary Sciences, and he indicated that they would have a very solid forecast by the end of this month regarding an ice-free Arctic, whether it would occur this year or not. And he, at that point, was not willing to give up on the idea that we would have an ice-free Arctic as early as this year. So we'll see how that goes. In any event, we have another we'll caller see, from uh, Alaska. Don? Don, do you have a question or a comment for us? Uh
3: guys talk and then this one man i mean uh i think i know what he's doing that's very interesting but here's my question i guess we all know that we're facing very dire conditions i mean this is this is it so what everything that we see everything that's going on now is wrong so that gives us a lot of leeway i mean you understand where i'm going with this I mean, it's been we have looked at the world in the wrong way, but is there a way to to, to you know to do that? I think if we start the uh, the mirror project, we might have a little time to figure that out. But I don't know; it's just a thought.
1: Hello. Yeah, I think if we can get started on the mirror reflection project, headed by Dr. Ye Tao at Harvard's Roland Institute, that. Uh, in fact, I think that's the only approach that would buy us a little bit of time. Unfortunately, it seems to be very poorly understood at this point. So if you look at all of it, I don't,
3: unless we change everything, we're not going to survive because uh, there's too many other feedbacks other than just coming from weather, you know, human created. But we've got to change a lot of things.
1: Oh, absolutely. And Dr. Tao understands that. I've been in touch with him frequently, and he knows that we have to change every aspect, basically, of the way we live. It's not just a matter of putting a few mirrors out and walking away and continuing business as usual. I don't think anybody who's studied this issue at all is under that misinterpretation. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And all I want is a new car. All right, Professor, you have a good day. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Thanks for the call. <clears throat> Jim, when we, when we spoke in January, you indicated you were familiar with the w- research of Natalia Shakova, Igor Semelotov, and their colleagues. They have been widely disparaged by modelers, such as NASA's Gavin Schmidt and the University of Chicago's David Archer. I know you are impressed, as I am, with the work of Shakova and colleagues. Can you give us your opinion regarding what is happening in higher education that is causing the demise of truth-tellers, such as Shakova and Zemelatov? In other words, why is the work of Shakova and colleagues being disparaged by other people who call themselves climate scientists, and and the focus is on the individual, not on the work? Can you comment on that?
2: Uh, Human nature, I really don't know. It it does disturb me. It does... um, um, Bother me because I mean, yes, I, I know them. Uh, they're you know they're, they're very good scientists. They're excellent scientists. They know what they're doing. I think part of the disparagement might be that you know maybe there's some uh, even a bit of climate denial among the climate scientists, If that makes any sense, uh, you know perhaps they don't want to acknowledge how how dire the situation is or really. Uh, you know that is far worse than they're previously thinking. You know, so as to why? Well, let, let, let's kind of look at the uh, the sampling regime, the the scheduling. Natalia and Igor they live in the Arctic, right? They have access to whether it's the ESAS or the you know the ground in Siberia. They have access to that basically 12 months of the year. So uh, in fact, Igor just finished up a uh, like a three four month cruise in the Arctic Ocean. Going from the East Siberian Sea uh, to the Laptev, to the Kara, uh, even out to the Barents, doing a grid system. A lot of these other scientists that come from, say, Tennessee or, whatever, or wherever, they're out there two weeks maybe. They're missing a lot. The you know, the sampling, it, you know, is not as thorough, so they're going to miss a lot. A lot of them rely on satellite data. Well, unless the satellite happens to cruise over just as, a, as methane is being released, it's going to be missed. So basically, they're doing a lot of underestimation. And whereas Igor and uh, Natalia, they have a more, um, shall so we say, complete sampling regime. It's, a, it's a more widespread. So they have more data, and they're able to capture what's going on. And hence, they report these levels that people say, oh, it's way too high, when it's, in fact, you know, because they're out there, uh, you know, sampling a lot, they're able to, to catch the methane, if you will, in the act. Um, and, of course, you know, like anything else, I mean, the, the ocean's a difficult place to sample. I mean, I could tell you from personal experience. I mean, you may be, you know, dropping a, you know, some sampling device off your starboard side And the ocean could be completely different 100 meters away. So it's very difficult. Uh, I don't don't know why they're being personally attacked. I said it it bothers me um, because I know them to be good people and excellent scientists. I I, I don't really have an answer to that Um, other than that. You know, look at their—you know, if you want to criticize their uh, analysis, if you want to criticize their interpretation, okay— That's fair. That's what science is about. But you don't go personally attacking people. Sorry, you just don't.
0: I think it's a classic case of shooting the messenger because the news is so bad. Mm. One one thing I'd like to bring up about methane is that it's often disparaged. Those of us who are concerned about the methane threat are often disparaged. And I wonder, is it partially because... Methane, methane is so short lived and so quickly oxidizes into carbon that the numbers, the methane numbers aren't going up relative to how much methane is being released because of that short, um, short uh, life span.
2: I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch all of that, Kevin. We got a, a little garbled on my end.
0: Okay, so I'll go again. One of the things I think. Is that the reason why people doubt the methane threat? Is that as methane gets released into the atmosphere, it quickly oxidizes into carbon, so it, it mm-hmm. doesn't show a true cumulative number of how much methane has been released.
2: That's yeah, that's a very valid point, and it, it's a it's a correct point. But you I mean, don't forget what they're uh, uh, well, when Igor is looking at the permafrost, he's of course capturing the release of the methane as it comes right out of the ground as, as they are, you know, when they're measuring the seepage from uh, the, the uh, Arctic shelf, you know, they're trying to capture it as being released before it has a chance uh, to be worked on biologically, you know, be the uh, oxidized carbon or, you know, or, or something else. So, but the point is though, yeah, methane is more potent and, and it doesn't go away. It stays as carbon. So it's still the effects are still there.
0: Yeah, and then of course no one talks about the methane that gets metabolized in the water column and and can uh, adds to the amount of acidification that we're seeing.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's um, it, it, you know I remember talking with Igor. And, you know, this goes back, oh, crap, 20 years now, (laughs) something like that. And uh, I remember him telling me, you know, when he and Natalia were really, you know, they have been doing this already for a a while, and they really were cranking up their, uh, you know, their research and stuff. And he he told me, he said, the methane question is going to be the big question. And he, he basically said what he was trying to ascertain is, exactly how much is in the ground and what's the rate of release that's what he was and that's been basically the focus those two basic questions may, may sound basic but they're important questions those are the, the questions he's been trying to uh, get a handle on after all these years of doing the research
1: and it's not as if Shikova and Semelitov are the only people writing about it now. It's become fairly widely known, in the scientific community at least, through peer-reviewed evidence that methane has very, very profound consequences in terms of global heating, and that it's going up. And when it does break down in the atmosphere, it breaks down into carbon dioxide and water vapor to powerful greenhouse gases and as Kevin pointed out when it breaks down in the water column it acidifies the ocean. None of that sounds like it's a good deal to (laughs) me. It it isn't.
2: Um, I mentioned earlier about the uh, you know the heat content of the of the oceans. Well don't forget as you just mentioned you know you have uh, water and you throw in some CO2 in there you make a little bit of thing called carbonic acid. Which, as we have seen, is a decrease in the pH of the oceans. Here's another thing that um, people may not uh, be aware of is that when you have the, the uh, thermal haline circulation, that not only sequesters heat to a uh, depth, but also sequesters the, the carbon dioxide. So typically, what will happen is that you increase the CO2 levels at depth you know, below a 1,500 meters or so. And, of course, we all know how pressure affects solubility, et cetera. But with the stratification of the oceans, we're now seeing what's called a shallowing of the CCD. The CCD is the calcite compensation depth. It's also referred to as the lysocline. And basically, at depths below the lysocline, uh, calcite stays in solution. Above the lysocline, calcite is able to be precipitated. Well, calcite, what's formed of calcium carbonate, is widely used by organisms to make their shells. This is getting shallower, which means that the depth at which it can be pre- used by the organisms to precipitate into their shells is getting shallower and shallower. The organisms are literally having their home being dissolved out from around them. This is going to have great mortality on the organisms that require such a structure. And it's something you just don't see, but it is happening. And the, the CCD is getting shallower and shallower. In some oceans, I have seen it as, as shallow as 80 meters, where typically it's much, much further down the water column, like several hundred meters. So this is a very alarming development.
0: Oh yeah, that's an incredible change in the chemistry in the water.
1: Absolutely. Your mention of carbonic acid brings to mind one of the early peer-reviewed papers on the topic, by Svente Arrhenius, who went on to win a Nobel Prize in chemistry. And the title of his April 1896 paper was On the Influence of Carbonic Acid in the Air Upon the Temperature of the Ground. And this was one of the very early papers describing what happens when we put carbon dioxide into the air in terms of planetary heating. A noteworthy contribution too seldom mentioned today. I want to change horses just a little bit here and talk about sea level rise. How quickly could sea level rise and to what level compared to today? over a variety of temporal spans, say within the next decade, within the next 100 years, whatever? Well, it depends on the rate of
2: melting. Uh, well, obviously we know about, we're losing ice from Greenland, we're losing Alpine uh, glaciers, and of course there's Antarctica. Uh, the Thwaites uh, Glacier is in, uh, the uh, concern that it's in uh, imminent danger of total collapse. And if that were to happen, uh, Pine Island would would follow quickly behind it. Uh, you also have uh, what's going on with the Ross. You've got the Brunt Ice Shelf. There's a lot of uh, areas, a lot of ice sheets that are in danger of, of collapse. The problem, you know, and I've seen, you know, various uh, estimates of that if all the ice were to melt, Greenland, Antarctica, what have you, that sea level rise would be uh, on the order of about 75 meters or so what's the time span for that it depends on the the model that you look at i've seen uh, things from uh, you know 100 years or 200 years or so but what i am seeing in the short term is at least uh, a 30 centimeter rise within the next decade or so perhaps even more i'm seeing uh, some cases one meter by 2050. you know there are different models out there that that project different levels over a different time span the point is though sea level rise is happening and don't forget of course we have thermal expansion that's also going to affect uh, the sea level rise in addition to ice melting so there are a lot of uh, you know parameters that need to be uh, considered but i in a recent uh, paper i was looking at and they were, they were mapping out sea level rise across the entire globe. And I noticed consistently that on the western basin of the ocean, like the western Atlantic, the western Pacific, basically in the area of the Gulf Stream, the Kuroshio Current off Japan, it always showed a, the highest level of sea rise there. And that led me to wonder, and I have not been able to find out the answer to this, it led me to wonder if when they were doing this um, mapping and when they were pre- preparing this graphic, if they took into account Western intensification of gyrus. Because when you have Western intensification, water levels tend to be higher on the Western side of the uh, oceanic basin, which then sets up a geostrophic flow and so on and so forth. So I'm looking at that and I'm like saying, I am not sure they took that into account. So that leads me to wonder how accurate those assessments are. It's, it's not easy to do, of course not, but these are some of the things one must uh, think about.
1: Right. In fact, we're already witnessing adverse consequences from sea level rise. Can you describe a few of them for us?
2: Well, um, uh, let's take a look at, uh, well, Florida there we're already seeing evidence of brackish water in infiltrating the water table. And that of course affects drinking water, but affects crops. You know, if the crops don't like uh, brackish water, uh, they're not going to do well. Another thing that people tend to forget is that when you have sea level rise, especially significant sea level rise in a meter or so or more, the, uh, the major drainage basins of rivers, like take the Mississippi as an example, the sea level was going to flood those areas I mean don't forget during uh was it the uh, Jurassic era or so uh, the, the North American continent was basically split in two with a with an inland sea, and we see the fossils in like New Mexico and so on of marine organisms so if that w- were to happen and it will happen if sea level rise does go as high as some of the uh, models are indicating you're going to basically you know Ruin or you know contaminate uh, any of the uh, groundwater uh, with brackish water, making uh, the water not potable, and uh, it's going to be detrimental to uh, uh, crops. You know, putting aside that the Oglala reservoirs basically drain dry, but it's still it's a major problem.
0: Well, what we're seeing in the Pacific with our Pacific Island neighbors is just a few millimeters of sea level rise has had the effect of making their uh, wells and their aquifers brackish because of the increased pressure. And also that changes, when they use that water, that changes the pH of the soil. So that that tiny little bit of sea, sea level rise has had a pretty monumental effect already. But personally, I think sea level rise is a bit of a red herring. I think the loss of habitat is much more significant and much more immediate than sea level rise. Sea level rise is a, a, a problem that's going to be a real issue later in the century where I think we won't be around.
2: Well, there's no doubt that uh, habitat loss is a major problem and it's one of the uh, major factors uh, currently uh, at at work here in the uh, in this latest mass extinction going on. Um, it, it's like everything else. Uh, what I try to stress in... In my video is the rate of change of things, and you know, not not necessarily related to what we're talking specifically here, but the other thing I like to talk about are budgets. You know, be it heat budgets, carbon budgets, what have you, and that you know is an overall assessment of is there a, a net or a loss, a net gain or a net loss. So, to me, if I was to try to explain to non-professional scientists uh, out there is basically consider what the rate of change is and what the budget are telling us and the rate of change whether you look at the, the warming the ice melt the permafrost line, you know you pick your parameter the rate of change is nothing that we have prior scientific evidence for it's the it's the fastest we have data indicating and that to me is what's most alarming because if it's happening so fast, organisms, and that will include humans, organisms are not have do not have enough time to adapt.
0: I'm so glad you brought up the rate of change issue because that's what Guy and I have been hammering on about for years. And you know we follow the precautionary principle, so we look at what is the worst possible scenario that can can evolve from where we're at and how are we going to deal with it? And because the can kickers have been in charge and the bean counters, um, this all just gets kicked down the road and off the cliff. Hey, our, our guest earlier, Don, has come back and he has just a follow-up comment that he'd like to make. Don, have, have your say, sir. Are you there, Don? Hello. Hello.
3: Hello. Uh, Professor McPherson. Yes. Hello? Yeah, this is Don again. I just wanted to say, um, it does amaze me that this is the sixth mass extinction. And here we have some very good minds, and they're, they've always been hard to find, rare, and I'm only the second caller. How do we change it? How can we do it? I mean, it's just, I don't know. How do we do it?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know. You know, I've been pounding this drum for a very long time, since June 20th, 2012, actually. And I have only received adverse attention in response. By the way, we're on at least the eighth mass extinction event in the last two billion years. The, most people still are under the impression it's the sixth, but a couple others were discovered in the last three or four years. In any event... I don't know.
3: I'm going to research research
1: it it again. From here to there.
3: (laughs) What? Well, no, you're right. It's just a lot of people use six because it's. I think it's easier. It makes you know it's more simple. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's true. It is probably the eighth.
1: Well, and and I just don't know how we inform the masses, how we engage the masses in what is the most important event in human history. How, That's I mean, what blows my mind. That alone. That alone is not a parade like
3: that they, No, you don't. Know, come on. It's just stupid. But well, like Peter Wadham's, I understand what he's doing now with the uh with taking carbon out. He does he knows the mirror project will work, but he wants to get he wants to take carbon out of the atmosphere, which is I know his reasoning, I think. But uh yeah. It'll work. And then what he said was, well, if we you know we use this geoengineering method, then uh humans can go on and be allowed to be stupid.
1: But I don't know. Right. And and, and that's a misunderstanding of the mere reflection framework and how it's going to be implemented, as I understand it from Dr. Tao, and based on my many conversations with him. Uh-huh. Doctor Tao doesn't think that we can just continue business as usual. I don't think anybody believes that. Jim, do you bro. care to comment yeah, at I this did. point? I'd like for you to weigh in. Uh, I, I,
2: I'm, I'm in agreement with you, uh, Dr. McPherson. It's like how do you uh, – it, it, it's, it's like trying to push back, you know, huge uh, current. I mean, it's – I don't have an answer. I, we, we do what we can. We, we try our best to inform. I don't know how you change the mindset of billions of people. Uh-huh.
3: Hmm. Well, either way, it it doesn't matter because either way, it's going to be uh, right in our face, so to speak. And I'll bet you a year's push. I mean, it's going to be very noticeable. But well, they're, gonna, they're I mean, I, I want to well. see it happen. I want to live long. I want to see it happen. I really do. I mean, not happen, but I've spent so much time on this. I want to see how it plays out. But there was I have a, tried my uh, best to, you know, you know, do uh, do what I thought was right to slow it, but nothing. I don't see it. Uh,
2: I I don't either. I mean, there was uh, I, I did a recent video. I know uh, Kevin uh, commented on, and I appreciated his comment, and his sharing my video on his blog, where I, I basically called out Dr. Michael Mann for, you know, for you know decrying us as doomers and basically saying, oh, well, if we do, if we uh, get to zero emissions, we can prevent the you know, warming to be less than 2C. And it's like, well, what about thermal inertia? And, you know, and getting to zero emissions is, I'm sorry to say, is unrealistic. It's just not going to happen. Even if you go to green technology to get the materials to make the green technology, be it the lithium, for lithium batteries or the materials of solar panels, you're going to have to do mining, and mining usually involves uh, heavy construction equipment that uh, burn diesel. <laughs> As an example.
1: And what about the aerosol masking effect? What about the aerosol masking effect? Michael uh-huh. Mann never talks about it. He completely ignores it. He knows about it. I know he knows about it because he was involved in an email exchange between Tom, Tom Hartman and I years ago. So He knows about the aerosol masking effect, going to net zero emissions is not going to uh, help. Jim, can you uh, comment? uh,
2: Sorry. Uh, uh, Also, uh, you know, Dr. Hansen has published papers on the aerosol effect. I mean,
0: you know. I feel forced to um, speak about uh, um, Michael Mann because I've spent a lot of time researching his work and I was in awe of him when he first came out with the um, hockey stick theory. But in the last three or four years, as things have ramped up and got faster, Michael Mann has been backtracking. He doesn't even back up his own science. Recently, he made the outrageous comment where he said that if we stop emissions, and you know, there's no known way to stop emissions uh, without collapsing the global economy. Uh, He said, if we stop emissions, warming will stop. And that is completely and utterly wrong. There's a 10 to 30 year lag in in, uh, emissions going into the atmosphere and their effects. No matter what we do, we're gonna have a hell of a lot more warming. So when he said that, I I cannot call that a mistake. I think he's lying.
2: Well, that, that's why be- I, did, I made that video, basically saying he's ignoring one very basic thing, and that's uh, thermal inertia. Uh, I mean, that's the, you can't really argue with physics, can you? I I, I don't think you can. Um, I, I think uh, it was uh, – wasn't you, Dr. McPherson, who shared something with me about that uh, – or maybe it was you, Kevin. I know it one of you two gentlemen who shared with me uh, the notion that uh, there are uh, ecologists out there – who uh, basically demonstrates that an increase of 4C will be enough to cause humans to go extinct. And so when I see projections of, you know, five to seven or seven to nine, 10, even 11C by 2100, if they are correct, it kind of makes it all moot, doesn't it? Mm
1: -hmm. It certainly does. Jim, one takeaway question for you is we're about to run out of time here. What are your next steps in your own efforts to educate the masses?
2: I I will continue doing what I do. I I you know um, I look through the literature. I am preparing a video on ocean heat content. Um, so look for that. I gotta, you know, I'm putting it together, record it, and I'll edit, yada yada. But uh, so so that's gonna be a um, a video uh, it's coming down the pipe. I got some other videos, you know, talking about the overfishing, and I did see your uh, your video that you shared with us, Kevin. Um, I it's it's sobering. I can't say I'm surprised because any of us who who follow the what's going on with the fisheries, uh, you know, would would tell you that this is coming down the pipe but it's still very sobering, especially when you consider that something like, that—two, yeah, 2, 3 billion people get their protein from the ocean. And now you couple that with what I stated earlier about stratification of the ocean and, you know, the productivity tanking, those uh, food systems will collapse. And, and the other thing is a warming ocean, we know that gas solubility decreases with a warming ocean. So the larger organisms that... Uh, need a uh, higher oxygen content will not do well, so this is everything is just coming at us in full force. I mean, it's it, it, it's it's quite honestly a bit overwhelming.
0: Absolutely, it is. Um, just for the, the benefit of our readers, the uh, video that I sent to Jim about overfishing is called "The Price of Fish." And it was shot by a mate of mine, Neil Stitchbury in Auckland. And it it is a lot like sea piracy, but a New Zealand version. Hey, uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show again. We're going to have to wrap now. We've come to the end of our hour already. I'd like to say thank you to Jim and uh, Don for calling in, and as well as Afrazen for our theme music. You can catch NBL on PRN the first Tuesday afternoon of the month at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Our next episode is scheduled, we are live on May the 4th in the United States. That's 8am Wednesday the 5th in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We have a conversation with Dr Jamie Hest, Doctor of Philosophy and also Doctor of Psychology. Dr Hest was a guest on the show on May 31st, 2016. If you missed the broadcast, you can find shows in the archives at prn.fm or at Stitcher. And free- feel free to rate us on iTunes. Also, continue to follow the Nature Bats Blast blog, guymcpherson.com, for further update, updates, interviews, and speaking tours. And you can keep up with my work at kevinhester.live. Until the next time, remember the dominant culture has been very clever. But in the end,
1: Nature Bats last. Thank you, gentlemen. It was fun.